Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Jared Watt. I'm the specialist digital editor for the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong. And this week, just as we reported the PLA Navy ships and jet fighters had been called off from their exercises in the Taiwan Strait, they were on again as another delegation of American members of Congress flew in to visit Taipei and meet and greet the elected president, Tsai Ing-wen, as well as holding a meeting with the world's number one maker of semiconductors, TSMC. But that news almost got lost in a week where reports on military exercises and drills seemed to come at us almost every day. There was, of course, the exercises and drills by Taiwan's Army and Air Force one day after the PLA had finished their operations. There was the dispatch of China's PLA soldiers to Russia for the Vostok military exercises, which, to quote the official statement from China's defense ministry, is unrelated to the current international and regional situation. There was also the high-altitude missile test over Xinjiang by the PLA rocket forces, and there was the historic first mission to Australia for the German Luftwaffe, part of the biennial pitch black exercise in the north of Australia, which goes for three weeks and brings the military forces of 17 different nations together for training and drills. But this episode is all about the shots being fired figuratively rather than literally. We're headed back to Washington to hear from SCMP's North American Bureau Chief Rob Delaney about Washington's next provocative action regarding Taiwan. It's a new trade deal announced this week. Of course, it's going to need a signing ceremony, and apparently the invitation is open for a plane load of USTR staff to fly to Taipei sometime soon. Rob's got some fascinating insights on how that's going to work, as well as a report on a very provocative piece of legislation being proposed that targets Chinese investment in US agribusiness. There's mention of the word blacklist. How will that play with the very powerful farming lobby? How will it work? And then we're welcoming back our correspondent from London, better known as the former host of this podcast, Chad Bray. Amongst the posturing of the two candidates for Boris Johnson's old job, the one he curiously still holds, comes two very significant announcements targeting China that will have repercussions far and above the vicious battle between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss to be chosen by the ageing members of the Conservative Party as the new Prime Minister. It's an august discussion here in the middle of August. Let's get amongst it. Last week, we heard from our correspondent Jacob Fromer in Washington, D.C., about the new Taiwan Act going before the U.S. Congress. One week later, and we're reading about a new trade deal between the U.S. and Taiwan, which seems like a substantial level of engagement for the U.S. with a self-ruled island that it doesn't recognize as a country. Rob Delaney is our North American Bureau Chief and is here to help us make sense of this. Good morning, Rob. Hey there, Jared. It's great to be here. How are you? Good, thank you. Now, this new trade deal that's been announced, did this come as a surprise to you, Rob? It certainly looks like the U.S. administration has been working on a series of legislative actions to launch this year. 
Uh, well, there are two different things there. The, the trade deal is actually more of this, what, what the Biden administration characterizes as a uh, initiative. So it's the U.S.-Taiwan initiative on 21st century trade. And so it, I think what's important to understand here is that this isn't a traditional trade deal because the administration itself doesn't have the power to uh, to enact any cuts on import tariffs or uh, to uh, provide any further market access for anyone outside uh, the, the US. So this is really just about standards. It's about trying to, uh, to coordinate and sort of uh, co- coordinate on the way that trade works. Uh, it's a lot about cutting out red tape. It's a lot about trying to sort of facilitate the process of trade. Putting every, making everything digital, getting the paperwork out, putting it online and, and making it so that you can sort of get through all of the red tape online instantly before the product arrives on the other shore. And uh, it's about uh, putting uh, the customs agents uh, in the, both on the Taiwan side and the US side, uh, giving them uh, a, ch- a chance to coordinate more efficiently so that the trade that is happening can happen more quickly and more efficiently. But at the same time, of course, this initiative talks a lot about just the way you have in the Asia-Pacific economic framework. This initiative with Taiwan is very similar to that in that it talks a lot about labor standards. It talks about environmental standards. It talks about initiatives that they can coordinate on to to further their anti-corruption goals. What's key in these areas that the trade initiative is going to cover, it also very specifically calls out uh, state-owned enterprises, and it calls out uh, non-market practices and policies. So those two things are, are, they're so obviously directed at China you know, it's it's really a lot of criticism about the way that China runs its economy and uh, practices the, the way it does uh, sort of market access. Uh, and and they so it's like they're talking about China. They're saying they're restating everything that <laughs> critics uh, in, in Taiwan and in Washington say about China without actually saying the word itself. So in that respect, it's very similar to uh, to uh, IPEF, the uh, Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. But of course, with IPEF, it didn't include Taiwan. And I think everyone understands that the reason that IPEF didn't include Taiwan was because they wouldn't have pulled in the number of countries that signed on for IPEF, because those there would have been many of those countries perhaps would have been very reluctant to join IPEF, knowing that Taiwan was included and, and not wanting to provoke Beijing. So Rob, is there any discussion of a timeline and or a location where these talks will be held? Yeah, well, in the announcement that the USTR came out with last night, they said that they're going to start their talks in uh, early fall or in the autumn. So I can, we can only imagine that it could happen anytime starting in the next month or so. But there was the top Taiwanese trade negotiator, uh, John Deng, who was saying that he would hope that it would be that these talks would be in person and that they could be held in Taipei. Which, uh, which just brings up the prospects of another round of what we saw a few weeks ago after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi wound up in Taiwan. And also in the last couple of days with, uh, is it a representative? Followed up, right. 
we had more Congress, we had more members of Congress heading over to Taiwan, another delegation. I can only imagine the kind of response the PLA Navy might be thinking about when a plane load of US legislators and, and trade representatives fly in or proposed to fly into Taipei. Indeed. I mean, I don't, I, we probably wouldn't see a situation where we've got members of Congress flying in with USTR officials, but I think having USTR officials alone would certainly be enough to uh, anger Beijing further, given that we've been seeing the response that we've seen from uh, from having uh, another five uh, lawmakers from the U.S. arrive after Nancy Pelosi's trip. You know, we're, we're just now waiting to learn what USTR official is going to wind up in Taiwan, or are they going to agree to that? Which official is going to go? I can't imagine that it's going to be uh, Catherine Tai. That's getting awfully high in the hierarchy of the Biden administration. And it's very difficult. It, I think it would be very difficult to characterize Catherine Tai as not an official engagement between the Biden administration and the and the Taiwanese government, right? But even if they send someone lower ranking in USTR, it's still USTR. So it's it's hard to it's hard to imagine how this wouldn't sort of stoke the uh, the, the flames of anger in in Beijing again. And speaking of Beijing, what kind of response has there been? Has there been from Beijing or from uh, Qin Gang, the ambassador to the US? Well, uh, we've had, well, Qin Gang was, he, he had given a, a talk earlier this week in Washington, and it was, it was just sort of, a, it was a restatement of everything we've heard. It was kind of the greatest hits about what Beijing has been saying about these, uh, these congressional delegations showing up in Taiwan. Uh, it was very defensive uh, about Beijing's position on this. So he underscored everything. Now that Appearance in Washington was a day before this announcement came out uh, uh, from from USTR, and so far from the Chinese side, we really only we have a spokes uh, we have a spokeswoman from China's uh, Commerce Ministry has come out to say that of course they oppose this, they oppose any sort of official contacts between the two sides. So it's nothing you know really on on the scale of. Beijing's reactions to uh, what the U.S. is doing in terms of engagement in Taiwan, it's been kind of muted. But then again, this announcement that just came out was there was one analyst who referred to it as really just a re-announcement because it was June 1st was the first time that they actually came out and said that they were going to start working on this, in, in this initiative. The announcement that we just got on this was kind of a restatement that they intend to start negotiations on this uh, with a little bit more detail on what uh, what mandate the negotiators have. And, and that's sort of a, a list of 11 different things, including trade facilitation, uh, anti-corruption, uh, uh, measures that they would take to help uh, small and medium-sized enterprises uh, make it easier for them to conduct trade between uh, Taiwan and, uh, and, and the US. Uh, but but anyway, Beijing has already known that this is underway. So I think we're what we're probably going to have to look out for is who from USTR is going to wind up in Taipei. And of course, everything that happens in the US politics from here until November is viewed through that prism of the upcoming midterm elections. 
We'll talk about a little bit about that in just a second, but I want to turn to this story that's just dropped on the SEMP.com website as we speak, and that's from our colleague Kushbury Razdan. And this is a story about the you know, the intersection of national security, patriotism, and agriculture which is always an exciting mix. And that is this story that's been just bubbling away in the background for a while that a a Chinese company has proposed a 700 million US dollar agribusiness facility in North Dakota, which is fine, uh, except that it's just 19 kilometers down the road from the Grand Forks US airbase, which has a lot of the intelligence, surveillance, uh, reconnaissance units, in the US military. Now, it appears that there is a senator who's come out and wishing to blacklist, there's that word that's definitely from the Cold War, any investment or acquiring of US farmland of agricultural businesses by Chinese owners. Can you explain a bit more about this story? Yes, it's just as you say. It's um, Senator Mike Rounds of South Dakota has introduced this legislation that would prohibit Chinese investment into American agribusiness, and so uh, this is just uh, you know an, an, uh, an expansion of the prohibitions that have been laid on Chinese investors successively over the past few years. Where we've seen, uh, for example, we all we're all familiar with the story about how uh, Huawei has been banned from telecommunications networks in the U.S. Uh, we also have the uh, the interagency investment review board known as CFIUS that has whose powers have been expanded. Uh, they've been given a much stronger mandate to uh, to block investments uh, from Chinese investors. Uh, so now, I, you know, this comes as a surprise that this is now uh, moving into the agricultural sector because throughout all of these tensions that we've seen that really started under the uh, the Trump administration, the agri- agricultural trade was the one area where we seemed to get some cooperation. There was uh, there were targets set for uh, China to increase its imports of U.S. goods. And that was lagging in a big way for most sectors, except for agricultural commodities. So, uh, so it kind of begs the question, if this legislation actually gets momentum in Congress and passes, uh, what will that do? How, you know, how will China respond to that? Will they, uh, will, will they then decide that they are no longer going to buy US agricultural products? Uh, of course, that leads to other questions like, well, do they really even have a choice right now? Because obviously, there we've we're, the world is dealing with grain shortages caused by the Ukraine war, also by environmental factors, global warming cause, causing droughts and floods and whatnot. So, uh, yeah, a lot of questions. It's it's interesting to note that this legislation was introduced. Uh, by the way, there's also a version in the House, uh, in the House of Representatives, uh, also uh, introduced by a Republican. So we don't know yet how much momentum or how much support this is going to have because Congress is still out of session. They will be out of session for another two weeks. So it is an unusual time for uh, for someone to introduce legislation. We'll see when when the uh, members of Congress come back in September. Are they all going to jump on and co-sponsor this legislation? Are they going to do it in a in a bipartisan way? Are they going to bring Democrats on board to this? So uh, you know. I would guess that given that uh, anti-China sentiment, anti-China 
uh, legislation has been the only thing that's been popular in a bipartisan way uh, has, has been about blocking China here and blocking China there. So uh, this could be just yet another area where, as if we didn't have enough uh, points of contention between the US and China, this, this could very well be another one. On face value, it seems like it's less a case of reds under the beds than reds with the same zip codes. This kind of thing is going to kick off. But I'm kind of compelled to note that in 2013, the largest company acquired by Chinese interests to date, Chinese interests in history so far, was when the Smithfield Group, a massive company dealing with pork, raising pork and manufacturing the products for export or indeed for sale across the US, now owned by Chinese interests, that would seem to be a prime example of what this kind of legislation might target. And again, just stress that it is just one senator proposing this. Uh, This is not from the Biden administration, but very, very interesting times ahead. In the agricultural sector, of course, you've got many farmers, uh, agribusiness, Uh, lobbying groups that love China because China buys so much of their product. On the other hand, you've got this this anti-China sentiment. Is it overrunning that sentiment? Is it, you know, at this point, which force is stronger? It's it's very hard to say. And you do, this is drumming up a lot of animosity between those who feel that we're just talking about China buying our goods. So why are we why are we why are we so suspicious about that? Uh, against those that that insist that everything that China does in the U.S. is is somehow uh, a an, nefarious an act, and and this is uh, and, and this is no different. It's understandable that having having a large investment in an area that's fairly close to a uh, to a military facility, uh, but n- not all of American farmland, not all of American uh, agribusinesses are near a military facility. So this legislation, and, and I can only imagine that there would be some farm groups that would be against this, or, or perhaps would just insist that this uh, this legislation is is revised somehow to say, okay, well, anything within XX uh, kilometers from anything remotely involving uh, American military facilities would be banned. Uh, but but we'll see. It's it's early on in the legislative process. Things could change. Let me turn to your latest column, Rob, and it's focused on this side of the world, particularly the ASEAN conference uh, and this controversial moment where China's foreign minister Wang Yi walked out of this conference of foreign ministers just a little while ago and what that means for China's diplomatic power in the region. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, I think it was significant because uh, so many of the Southeast Asian countries are uh, obviously they have uh, they are so tied to China economically that it's it's understandable that they would not want to uh, they they would not want to confront Beijing uh, in 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 any of these areas. So I think it, I th- I think it showed some sort of breaking point in terms of um, in in terms of putting a, maybe drawing a line in the sands about. Uh, about how um, uh, about how far they feel uh, Beijing can go 
in terms of dictating the terms of uh, economic engagement uh, and uh, I, I suppose military engagement uh, in, in the region. And so, and the other thing that really struck me is that uh, there are really, you, you could understand why there would be a, a, a pushback from Southeast Asia on in, about Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, because as we saw, the response from Beijing uh, predictably was, was quite belligerent. And, and, and these, these military exercises were more extensive than we had ever seen. It disrupted, uh, it, it disrupted the commercial flight routes. Uh, and I think there was, I think everyone sort of wondered how long this was going to last. And so I think there would have been scope there for someone in Southeast Asia, I don't know which country, but to say, hey, uh, even if, if not to just criticize her trip, at least to say, perhaps she shouldn't have made such a show of her meetings with President Tsai Ing-wen, uh, with meeting with dissidents that, uh, that are extremely critical of Beijing. They made this as upfront and on show as possible. And so I, I would have expected some grumbling about that. Like may, maybe she should have had her, we all, knew, we, we all knew she landed. We all knew that she was having meetings with Tsai Ing-wen. Perhaps the, it, it could have been handled in a way where they just released statements or something like that. Uh, and, and you could understand why, you know, some countries in Southeast Asia would have misgivings about that. Um, but no, we didn't hear, we really didn't hear much in the way of critic, outright criticism from ASEAN about Pelosi's trip. Instead, we, we saw this situation where uh, Minister Wang Yi had some sort of confrontation and walked out a couple of times in these meetings. So, uh, you know, I, I, I guess... Perhaps this is, you know, as I was saying before, there's a line in the sand. As we've seen, China has rejected the UN uh, tribunal on that dispute around the Philippines, uh, which, uh, which really dismissed uh, many of the claims that China has in the South China Sea. Of course, South China Sea is where you have a lot of these Southeast Asian countries. So I guess if you put together that uh, uh, Beijing's dismissal of that uh, UN uh, ruling, if you put it together with the military exercises that disrupted commercial flights, maybe what we're seeing is this concern that, uh, that, that Beijing will go further than they can handle. Well, that's an interesting point you make about not going too far than they can handle. We heard last week from Xi Jinping about the importance of lines of communication at the military and senior military level between the US and China. And of course, through all the nations of the ASEAN, I get the feeling you've got a very busy weekend ahead, if not next couple of weeks, given a potential new trade deal, a potential new piece of legislation targeting Chinese agribusinesses or Chinese ownership of US agribusinesses. We'll of course look for your upcoming analysis pieces and stories from the team at scmp.com. Rob Delaney, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jared. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com newsletters.
It is one month and 10 days since Boris Johnson resigned as Prime Minister of the UK. And due to the vagaries of the British political system, there is still no replacement confirmed for him. I'm guessing if there was a leadership vacuum in a nuclear-armed country which had recently voted for isolationist policies to distance themselves from their neighbours, we'd have a good reason to be worried. But instead, we're occasionally seeing images of pasty-faced English people sweating out a record-smashing summer with occasional headlines of what seems to be a combination beauty pageant, debate tournament and reality show starring the two main contenders for the job of British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, and who else to make sense of what this means for the UK's relationship with China than Chad Bray, former host of this podcast and now SEMP's correspondent in London, Josan Chad. Hi, Jared. It's good to see you again. It's great to see you again, Chad. Welcome back to the podcast. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I gave a brief summary of this strange public contest between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss that from this side of the world appeared to be more about who could make the most hawkish anti-China statement quoted by the press than anything else. Did I miss any potential nuance in their rhetoric? Well, it, it, it's interesting. So, so you know, shortly after we had, uh, you know, these two confirmed as finalists, we, we had a mini beauty pageant where it went from about eight candidates uh, who were voted on by a small group of uh, members of parliament, about 600 people, that got us down to two people. And then... As soon as this sort of got started, uh, we, we, they're now auditioning for members of the Conservative Party, which is only about 160,000 people within a country of 67, 68 million people. And so they're really trying to hit the red meat of what conservative voters care about. And when it comes to foreign policy, China is out front there. It is you know, something that, that they have gone and they've said China is a big threat. They've expressed concerns about everything from Hong Kong to uh, forced labor. And so it's really been a situation where they're trying to appeal to this core group of voters. That said, it's really calmed down in the past few weeks because there's a lot of other issues that have popped up that have really come to the forefront. The biggest one here in the UK is the cost of living crisis. Energy prices are raising, uh, rising at such a level that it's really forcing the candidates and even uh, Boris Johnson, the outgoing PM, who's mostly been on holiday lately, to try to start to address this. Because what's going to happen is January of last year, energy prices for uh, homeowners were capped at about 1,100 pounds. Come January this year, less than 12 months, it's going to be 5,000 pounds, it looks like. So it's become a real concern. That said, in the background, China is still brewing. There's a lot happening, whether it's concerns about China investment into the UK or it's concerns about the South China Sea. And we've seen um, UK government, even in this sort of vacuum we're in right now, talk about doing more things in Southeast Asia. And we can talk about that in a moment. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that. And yes, there's a few things still coming through in this government that seems to be sort of operating on autopilot. But I find it quite interesting that it was only February this year that Rishi Sunak wanted to restart the UK-China economic and financial dialogue and was you know, addressing crowds of, of finance service people saying, we've really got to get British financial services into China to make some money. But can I ask, has there been any public announcement about travel plans 
by any particularly British MPs to go to Taipei, given the number of diplomatic trips we're seeing announced from North America, from Europe. Yeah, well, you know, uh, investment with China still remains on the agenda for this government. Ever since um, Brexit, the the UK has been looking for uh, different trade partners. And one of the big concerns is China has grown from being about $47 billion uh, worth of trade a year to $93 billion. They're now the third largest trading partner for uh, the United Kingdom. So that's still big on the list. But in terms of, of, of Taipei, yes, there are members of a parliament committee, the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, who are planning to travel to Taipei later this year, uh, probably around December. Uh, it's a big question of who's going to be in that, because um, the chairman of that committee, Tom uh, Tugendhat, he is uh, a supporter of Liz Truss. And if she wins prime minister, he could find himself in government. We're not going to see senior government officials going. We're not going to see the foreign secretary, whoever that may be. We're not going to see the prime minister. But we are going to see you know, members of parliament just like we've seen House members and senators over the years travel to Taiwan. And so, you know, it's something where, you know, UK politicians want to make a point about it. There is a a very vocal group of uh, conservatives, Labour and Lib Dems, who speak a lot about China in Parliament. And, you know, we shall see several of them probably on this trip. Chad, we've seen the Biden administration increasingly ratcheting up trade sanctions, particularly with the trade sanctions on the export of technology to China. We've just seen the multi-billion dollar CHIPS Act just go through. Are we seeing anything like that from the British government, this attempt to sanction Chinese companies or companies trading with Chinese companies? Well, well, similar to the United States, there are you know technology curbs that exist for items that can be considered dual use. They can be used in civilian and in military applications. You know that's something that hasn't changed. That's something that's been around for a while. They just implemented a, a new law in January called the National Security and Investment Act. It's very similar to CFIUS in the United States. It is designed to take a look at investment into British companies mergers with British companies to see if there's going to be an issue. And so there are a number of of specific industries that have been cited within this that they have concerns about. They're everything from nuclear power to semiconductors. But the business secretary, while all of this sort of, uh, I don't want to call it mayhem, but, but strangeness that's been happening in the government lately, has been using his powers under this law. He's uh, blocked a Hong Kong uh, company from acquiring a British company this week. He's blocked a uh, Chinese company from being able to license technology developed at the University of Manchester. And the biggie that's going on right now is there's a company called uh, Newport Wafer Fab. They are the largest semiconductor producer in the United Kingdom. They're not on the scale of, of some of the Chinese and Taiwanese companies or the U.S. companies but they're the biggest homegrown one here in the United Kingdom. And it's really interesting because a Dutch company bought them last year. They they, they had been a shareholder for several years and they bought the rest that they had known. That Dutch company is owned by a Chinese company. That has caused several reviews on national security grounds. The most recent announced in May under this new law 
And it has really come to a boiling point uh, recently because you have a number of uh, UK politicians who say that this is not something that should be done, that they're giving away the store, the future for developing technology here in the United Kingdom. But at the same time, you know, this is a deal that's been done and it's been done at this point for a year. And they could, you know, either implement remedies or they could block the whole thing. And we would go back to this company, which was already facing financial problems, potentially going into bankruptcy. It, it, it's really an interesting situation. And um, the Dutch company has really been trying to express that that we're Dutch. Yes, we have a Chinese owner, but we're, we're Dutch. We've been here in the UK for a long time. We're in Germany. That's where we make our products. We're not taking this technology to China. You know, we want to invest. We want to protect jobs. We want to, you know, keep this business and allow it to grow. And you know, these are the kinds of pressure points that are sort of happening right now in the UK, where you have this concern about China and you know what it's going to do, but you also have this need for investment. And there's only a few places you can go really to get the kind of you know funds that they want, and China's a big one. So, Chad, I'm guessing whoever is the next prime minister has some pretty serious questions to answer about the British economy. They're, of course, still trying to figure out which way to go post-Brexit. They've already gone and signed some free trade deals with the likes of Australia and various other countries around the world. You filed a story just recently about British investment in Southeast Asia. What can you tell us? Yeah, it, it, it's interesting uh, because we, we, we've we had a situation here where, where Liz Truss, before she was a official candidate um, to be prime minister, um, was talking about the need to use foreign aid in the in the UK to sort of control what she was calling bad actors, you know, to to really really be a um, a check on 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 countries, whether it was what's going on with Russia, which was you know and still remains a, a huge issue here, or um, you know what's going on with China. And so, you know, following that, we had the uh, business secretary say that they were no longer going to provide overseas development aid to China. It wasn't a huge amount. It was only about 13 or 16 million pounds. It, it was not a large amount. But instead, they said they're going to use their investments to really try to help allies and help um, developing countries around the world and, and be sort of a check. And so in this case, um, uh, just recently, they announced that they're going to invest uh, in the neighborhood of 600 million pounds into the uh, Southeast Asia. Plus, they're also going to provide um, advice on security and maritime law issues, including allowing the Royal Navy, Navy to be involved in, in training. And so it, it's going to be interesting to see where it is, because in this case, in the last few years, the UK has said that the South China Sea and the Indo-Pacific is a big issue for them. They have uh, taken, as we've talked about on this podcast, um, uh, uh, their aircraft carrier group through the South China Sea, um, and they intend to have two warships permanently patrolling within Asia, within the Indo-Pacific. And so they're really trying to use a combination of military might, as it is, and funds to really try to, to be a counter on, on sort of the growing influence of China in different parts of Asia and other parts of the world. It, it is not quite the British empire of the past, but it is, it is interesting to, to see that they were willing to use the Navy as a way to try to, to be a check on Beijing. 
Wow, British naval ships and financial power meeting with China sounds very familiar for those of us who've read any of the history of Hong Kong. Chad, it looks like you've got another couple of weeks of prime ministerial candidate shenanigans. Uh, best of luck there. And I, I understand you're really getting some of that old-fashioned Hong Kong weather there in London right now. So I hope you're, uh, hope you're enjoying that. Uh, yeah, it's it's been uh, been a relatively nice summer, despite the fact that we haven't had much rain. But yesterday we had a pretty much a black rain event here in in London that caused uh, the the tube to close in various spots that caused uh, uh, television networks to go off the air. So you know it's almost like being at home. But you know we'll know more about what's going on with the UK Prime Minister come September the fifth. That's when Parliament's back in session. That's when they're going to announce a winner. And that's when we're going to find out who's in this government and exactly where we're headed. We'll be watching SEMP.com and following you on Twitter at Chad Bray for more news and analysis. Chad Bray, thank you very much. Thank you, Jared. That's all for this week. And my news is that I'm taking a week off to catch a slow boat back to Hong Kong and my hotel quarantine room. So we'll meet again in a fortnight. In the meantime, please make sure you check in with scmp.com for the latest news and analysis from our 24-hour newsroom. Follow the Political Economy team on Twitter at Political Economy. Thanks once again for listening wherever you are around the world. Stay safe and keep that mask on, folks. It ain't over yet. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.